Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Welcome, listeners, to the Ms. Interpreted podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey, hey there, Kelly, and to all of our listeners. As usual, we have our sound engineer, Chris Hill of Humble Pod, who's with us yet again to queue up some memorable moments for what is. Drum roll, please, there, Chris. Highlights of season two of Misinterpreted. Can you believe it, Kelly? Season two. Actually, I'm pretty thrilled about it because the wrap up of season two means we're halfway through this year, which quite frankly, I can't wait for it to be over. Amen, sister woman. I mean, we're to wish our lives away. uh, Well, me too. But I mean, here we are now on our 29th episode, right? And let me tell you something. If you had told me back in January that this year would be as helter-skelter as it turned out to be. I probably would have just thrown my little podcast recording schedule right out the window and said, you know, we'll just get to whatever topic whenever we get to it. I know. I keep saying that I would have predicted nuclear war before I would have predicted everything else <laughs> yes, that's going on in the yes. country. But to get to it, we did. We, even with everything going on from COVID-19 to the most recent events in our country, With so much racial unrest, not to mention the political landscape of a U.S. presidential election year. Oh, wait. Oh, it's a presidential race is going on? Who knew? I didn't know that. (laughs) I wish we could skip right over it. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, yeah. Minor point in the grand scheme of things. But we produced 14 episodes since January, and this will be our 15th. So we need to go out and celebrate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we could. Well, or coming to a retailer near you, misinterpreted face masks. (laughs) I really thought about having some of those made Marcus Hall could make them. Yeah, yeah, we ought to think about that. I actually know some people who'd like to put me in a face mask, only not the kind you can breathe oxygen through. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, yes. How you love to expose the guilty. Yeah, well, it's called honesty in a presidential election year. It's a new concept. Well, speaking of honesty and your work in the ethics category, congratulations, because you just were named to the PRCA Global Ethics Council. A few weeks ago. Um, yeah, I'm excited That's about a, that. We think it's a pretty big deal. Well, Tell yeah. us what you're going to be doing. Yeah, they just announced this a couple of weeks ago, and it was uh, right during the PRCA virtual summit that they hosted online, which, by the way, is recorded and you can tap into via the PRCA UK website. Yeah, they've announced a new Global Ethics Council to really take a whole fresh look at the issue of public relations and strategic communications ethics. And really, the timing could not be better. What's interesting, too, is that a gentleman in the UK who's you know living and working there and has for some time is chairing it, uh, David Gallagher, and he's a native Texan. Yeah, he's uh, from Austin. Yeah. So he's a US guy and really excited about working with him. Of course, we hosted him on the misinterpreted Twitter chat for May. And so that was a really good conversation. He shed some terrific light on what that whole effort's going to be about. But a lot of work to come. And we're having our first meeting here shortly. And I'll be keeping tabs on that and reporting back. Well, I'm very proud of you. And it's well-deserved. Your voice has been a big influence, I think, in the conversation in the United States and now globally. And I'm impressed that out of about five U.S.-based PR industry leaders who were selected to serve, 
including major names like the CEOs of Ketchum and Golan and the PR Council. You're the only one not living in New York City. (laughs) That's right. I'm, I guess, the heartland choice. Uh, But either way, I'll take it. It's, you know, it's just an amazing honor. It's an opportunity, too. And I'm just really grateful to Francis Ingham in, in particular for allowing me to serve in this way. He's a true friend, just a great colleague to have and a visionary leader. And we have some, like I said, very exciting work ahead of us. Well, keep us posted, and I'm sure we'll be following the efforts of this council on an ongoing basis. I will absolutely do that. Okay, so let's get down to business. Season two, we had some tremendous moments with some outstanding guests. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how much we learn and how enriching these conversations are and how many new friends we've made through this process. You're absolutely right. I mean, for me, too, it's interesting. My older daughters have started listening to the podcast, too, and it's been Great, because it not only sheds light for them on what I do for a living, but also how you and I work together, how our team works together for very diverse people on complicated issues and challenges. So it's a a really good snapshot for them. My son listens occasionally. He's in college. He primarily listens because he keeps begging me to be a guest on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what he's going to talk about. (laughs) Partying at Florida State, I guess. But it's giving him a a great real world perspective. And he's very proud of the work that we've done. And what I loved about this season was there were some big overarching themes. I don't think we set out to purposely have these themes, but we can probably put them in three categories. First, COVID-19, obviously. Well, yeah, we did a whole series of special edition episodes around COVID-19, which I think really helped a lot of business owners out there. I've gotten some very good feedback helping them get their arms around this crisis as fast as it hit the entire world. Yes, and us included. I learned so much from talking to these COVID-19 experts Mm -hmm. and getting their insights and opinions. And the next theme I would say that has popped up in season two quite often is diversity, which once again is timely. And uh, Yeah, I agree on that. I mean, who could have foretold that our society here in the States, as well as globally, would both explode, really, as well as coalesce as well around the issue of race. We've also had other conversations involving diversity, too. We did, and some of those were very uplifting Mm -hmm. moments, some of our most uplifting moments. But of course, just as uplifting as the third theme that emerged in season two was that of the principle of patriotism. I loved our guests who have served in uniform, and we had some truly special moments there, too. So I'm going to break all the rules here and go to our second theme first, because I think the COVID-19 will someday, someday, just let us pray, will be a memory. But what will always be important and relevant in this conversation is surrounding diversity. Yeah, yeah. we had several sub-themes there, I would say, within that diversity category, too. We did. It wasn't all about race. A lot of it was about gender. We we talked to two international guests, women in PR, Shay Lynn of Lynn PR in Wales in the UK, and also Professor Anna Adi in Berlin, Germany. Both of them had incredible insights as researchers into our profession. Also, we tackled women in leadership or women struggling or who have struggled throughout their careers to obtain major leadership roles, Mm -hmm. including Sharon Hannum and Joy Bishop and also Julia Angeline Joy and Molly McPherson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we and we also hosted Mike Paul just very recently on 
His having taken a stand in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy and the outcry for real, authentic, systemic change, we hosted my very good friend and high school buddy, Melissa Carter, broadcaster from Atlanta extraordinaire, reaching the big L in the LGBT market. So she really shed some great light there. And of course, we also talked uh, the first episode of this season with Bob Dickey of Bonvera talking about why women are a driving force in the direct sales sector. Yes, I loved all of those chats. And of course, Bob Dickey and Bonvera, that's a Fletcher client. Right. We'll go to his clip in a bit when we talk about patriotism too, because he's a veteran. Yeah, that sounds good. And Kelly, weren't you on Bob's podcast soon thereafter too? Because he has a podcast. Yes, I was. And it ended up being so long that they turned it into a two-part episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of like we did with Francis. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was more about my experience as a female entrepreneur yeah. and how, you know, women are starting small businesses at twice the rate of men mm-hmm. and how my journey of how going through being a woman entrepreneur, a single mom entrepreneur in the South and some of the challenges that I've faced and then some of the hopefully wisdom that I was able to impart on some of their listeners. Absolutely wisdom, for sure. Well, and listeners, uh, check out that episode of Bob's podcast that spotlighted Kelly. We'll, we'll post it with the episode notes here on the season two recap here. And turning to our other interviews in the diversity space, what I love about our international guests, kind of focusing there first, and we've had quite a few now, is first just these fantastic insights that they share. I think it's just great for us to hear from outside of the United States, what different professionals are doing and thinking the issues that they're grappling with, because frankly, it's a reminder that we have a lot of the same client and workplace challenges universally. We you know, do. We're, yeah, we're not alone here in the United States. And so it's just good to hear that perspective, but also some of the differences as well as to issues. I love Shione I Lynn, her, our first international guest of season two. I love her. These insights she shared spoke to the power of our profession when it's in the hands of someone who truly knows how to separate the wheat from the chaff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shy talked a lot about the importance of meaningful data as well as ethics in our chat with her. Chris, do you have a clip with Shy you can share? If you want that pay rise, you know, if you want to prove your value, if you want a seat at that table, that's not going to come into, you know, it's not going to fall in your lap. Right. It has to be earned. And it has to be earned by being strategic and understanding what the business is. PR's effectiveness is about helping a, a client reach certain tangible goals. Right. And in order to know how we get there, we need to then embrace data. So the way I see it, data helps us convey our narrative in an efficient and precise manner that leaves no room to view PR as a only function. You know, what we do is strategic. It does deserve the recognition and respect. So as practitioners, to be able to do that, we need to know where we want to get to. And by that, I mean we need to have smart objectives to start with, whether we're delivering a program or a campaign. Right. We need to understand our audiences deeply. And I do that by using data and behavioral science. And we need to be able to evaluate the impact of our work effectively using the right measures. So we can stand proud and call ourselves a strategic function. And that's how we add value to organizations. So it's not so much about too many metrics, I don't think. I think it's about focusing on the right metrics. It's about understanding numbers, whether they're good numbers or bad numbers, and understanding the numbers have a part to play in bettering and informing future strategy. 
You know, originally we had talked on our March episodes being all about Women's History Month, but COVID-19 derailed some of those plans. We had recorded an episode early in Q1 with Professor Anna Adi, which we had planned to air in March as, as part of that Women's History Month focus, but then we had to delay it for obvious reasons. But it was great finally to be able to share her insights as an academician as well. Chris, let's have that clip. So I have slowly migrated, if you want. I have slowly shifted in thinking that it's it's not a better use of data that we need, but but rather a much better understanding and, and thorough application of research. Mm-hmm. Because then data is part of research, but so is ethics part of research. So is understanding sampling, um, validity, reliability, when those concepts apply or they don't apply. Right. Um, so we would understand confidentiality versus anonymity. There, there are a bunch of things that go into the setup of a, of a bit of, you know, of a research program that need to be clarified and thought of, which have clear influence on what sort of data, right, and insights and analysis you can get out uh, if you want. Anna is just great, a very powerful voice in the yeah. global industry. And as a reminder, listeners, check out Anna's own podcast. It's called Women in PR, particularly if you're interested in getting an international perspective on women in PR. I will never get tired of hosting PR academics and researchers. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah me too. And given that Fletcher PR's focus is on marketing to women, it's especially positive, I think, to amplify women's voices, which is you know, one of the underlying themes of Misinterpreted, obviously, helping women's voices be interpreted in accurate and productive ways. Absolutely. And that's my passion yeah. and my career. And to that point, we hosted two women on one episode who were fountains of wisdom. I absolutely yeah. adored Sharon Hannum and Joy yes. Bishop, each of whom started their careers in the 1970s and who have been battle tested in getting that seat to the table, the proverbial seat to the table and who are now pillars of our regional community here in East Tennessee and just so filled with wisdom. They are. They are amazing leaders all around and just insightful thought leaders, too. We'll start here with a clip from Sharon Hannum, who is African-American and, frankly, for whom we were extremely challenged to land on just one clip because her comments included so many insights. Frankly, I recommend everybody just go back and listen to that whole episode. But I think this clip in particular resonates right now, given what our nation is going through across the racial divide. So, Chris, let's go to Sharon here. When I came into Alcoa in that particular role, there weren't even bathrooms for women. Are you kidding me? No, I'm very serious. Where did you go to the restroom? They last minute tried to retro. They basically changed the the name on the door of a a very small. Yeah. And there were some female hourly employees there. So they had made that one bathroom into a female bathroom. They removed urinal, put in a a toilet, basically, and changed the name on the door. They weren't ready for us. They were not ready for us. But there were a number of things that I encountered that maybe one day I'll write a book that was not healthy or happy for me, but long-term. I grew from it. They grew from it. They now have an Alcor Women's Network because there was no mentorship program for women at Alcor then. Mm-hmm. Now they have 10 maybe 
affinity groups. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. You should be. Yeah, very proud of the fact that they finally, as this generation says now, they're woke. Now that's real courage. Yeah. Sharon inspired me so much and I've run into her since. And yeah. of course her story of what she went through is sadly, it's it's not uncommon for women of color, particularly. Right. It's the kind of story that's powering the important call to action we're seeing happen right now. I think so too. And achieving equality in even those most basic human terms, I mean, such as what you know Sharon has talked about, it's just been a ridiculously slow moving process in this country. And we have to address it. It's important for white citizens to listen with empathy and care about what's going on and, you know, to provide a platform for the voices of African-Americans to be able to speak and be heard where we can provide a platform, whether it's on podcasts. I know that a lot of African-American leaders are providing their platforms for white Americans to be able to have truly productive conversations with one another. So it has to be a two-way street but as white Americans, too, we have to be voices of advocacy to help make change happen. This can't happen in a vacuum, really. No, that's so true. And, you know, the other thing I really love about Joy and Sharon is their amazing, enduring friendship, which yeah. has been years and years, and it really shone through in yeah. the podcast. I thought so. And it reminds me of two other women I know. <laughs> <laughs> when we're not in a fight. No, yeah. just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's us in a few years. Yeah. Only I just hope we have the same level of grace and graciousness to go along with that wisdom as, as Sharon and Joy do. Well, full disclosure, I may skew more toward battle axe than steel magnolia, but as long as it continues to entertain you, Kelly, I think we're good. I'll probably be mummy dearest, the grandmother, <laughs> mummy, mummy dearest. That's lovely. <laughs> I love your battle axe attitude, though. And the outer one, too. But yeah. yes, in the still Magnolia department, Joy is an ace. Chris, yeah. can you please cue up Joy's clip? So, Joy, what do you think? Can women have it all? Well, uh, I'm going to dodge the question <laughs> because uh, the I just want to tell another story <laughs> okay. that um, highlights where we are. Okay. You're just working and working, and you're busy. You have 125 Air Force bases on all different time zones that want and crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. All right. It's 5 o'clock. Time to go home. We have a serious thing in another time zone somewhere. This is kind of what I observed and I know it's what Sharon says. A lot of the guys had little league practice or a ball game that they coach for their children. The single women stayed and worked till midnight, okay? So that gets things out of balance, who you can count on. So it's not so much me that had a decision then except in promotions, in who you could really count on. So there's, there's a lot of, as Sharon says, you have to decide. If I have to go when a crisis is going, the company's not going to take to that too well. So can we have it all? It's not just women. 
can each of us have right. it all? It's an equal opportunity it's question. An, it is an equal <laughs> For opportunity sure. question. Yeah. yeah. You know, our friend Melissa Carter was actually here in studio when we recorded the interview with Joy and Sharon, and I think that she was as impressed as we were. And when it comes to diverse voices, it's important to include generational diversity of voice as well. So, you know, not everyone from the same age cohort just chiming in. You have to provide that platform for everybody. And Melissa Carter is a well-known Atlanta-based radio personality and podcasting expert herself. Her podcast is She Persisted, and it's absolutely fabulous. Check it out. Melissa spoke to us about the power of the lesbian market in the marketing to women's space. And I have to say, Mm -hmm. it was one of the most entertaining chats. She's hilarious, but so, so deep. Yeah, she's on point. For sure. (laughs) on point. And I learned so much that I didn't realize before about the LGBT market in general. Yeah, we sent a special shout out to Melissa right now. She just lost her wonderful mother, Millie Pete, in recent days. And our thoughts are with Melissa and her family. We love you, Melissa. So, Chris, let's share a little bit of what Melissa had to say. And going into the conversation about how people market to the gay community, they have to understand the life of the person before they are of adulthood and has money and needs to be marketed to. And I think that's why a lot of people are getting it wrong because we are not, um, we're not as simplified as a lot of people put Mm -hmm. us. And especially the lesbian community, because the one thing about the lesbian community, I think that, for instance, I, you can't see me, but I have hair that is fine and it does not look good the longer it grows. Okay. And that's just by nature, but I am still self-conscious about cutting it too short because I don't want to fit the stereotype. I'm not attracted to short haired, butchier women, even though I'm friends and love and respect them, but that's not what I'm naturally attracted to. But you know, I hear it almost 50 years old, I'm still having to think about my sexuality in terms mm-hmm. of my haircut. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And and there is a, I don't know, like, and, and so why wouldn't I want to be known as a lesbian? Well, I am a lesbian, but I'm, that's not what defines who no. I am. No. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, that's the concern is once I'm branded this, because it, being a straight person, you're not branded straight. You know what I mean? Yeah. But as a gay and lesbian, you're branded that way as if it's, again, a negative thing. And we still see evidence of that in society today. For instance, this past holiday, the whole Hallmark Channel controversy. Right. So here you have a group of people who watch Hallmark Channel for a month and a half or two months to see nothing but happy romance, right? Happy Christmas romance, going to have happy ending. I watch Hallmark Channel because... Nothing bad is going to happen. It's not going to be over dramatic. It's just a wonderful love story. And so you have this idea that people just want to focus on love. And then this is the first year that Hallmark happened to run a commercial that celebrated a lesbian couple getting married in the commercial. And people were were protesting Hallmark. Were tur- I will never watch this channel again. They were mad at Hallmark. Hallmark pulled this commercial. And then the gay community and the people who support the gay community came out and said, you're being a hypocrite. Right. And so they said, okay, we'll put it back on. <laughs> so they were being very reactionary to it, but yeah. it just shows you still in our society, people claim to support the gay community, but they just don't want to see the gay community. 
it's just so important not to assume too much. And as much as it's also important to do target marketing and segmentation, we have to be sure we're not being divisive in the process. Yeah. And that brings us, I think, to our chat with Michael Paul, known in social media as the reputation doctor, an African-American PR leader who just in recent days very publicly resigned from the Diversity Action Alliance, or DAA. It's a consortium of public relations organizations, including PRSA and the PRSA Foundation. Mike's very public stance, I think, crystallized how I think productive protest is done and can be done well to take a stand against all this lip service situation, all of the inaction that's occurred just for decades now, even longer than that, in the face of an overwhelming need for societal change. Mike has really inspired me. I read his LinkedIn post Mm -hmm. and he's not only a whistleblower, he's somebody who has just said, I've had enough. We're not doing anything here. And what he's done is so brave. Chris, could you please cue up our chat with Mike? Change means being uncomfortable. And for everyone on DAA and for everyone in PRSA and for everyone in every corporation and agency, here's what you need to know. Study the past. If people say these issues are like civil rights issues to them, and I say it every day, that means we're willing to make sacrifice. And if we're willing to make sacrifice, that means there's a greater chance for it to become true. And if there's a greater chance for it to become true, you better get on board. Because your clients are soon, I'm telling you, as soon as next year, going to say, you can't walk in here with four or five white people. My client base, the people we do business with, won't let us do it anymore. We've been educated. We're afraid of being in the newspaper and having a picture of us sitting on a board or showing our leadership. We're working towards it, but our meeting with the people who are our, our consultants you better have some kind of mix because we can't do it. That's true today. And you're going to see more of that in our profession in the coming months. So powerful. Yeah. Nothing misinterpreted there. I think we need to continue following Mike as an industry leader as the national and global dialogue on race continues to unfold in real time. Absolutely. Let's turn now to our COVID-19 special editions from misinterpreted season two And I'd like to run through a montage here of clips on this topic on PR and management best practices that we had put together to help respond to the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our first COVID-related episode dealt with crisis management in general with you and me sharing our experiences, Kelly. So Chris, please share that clip here. So the three things that I think are most important when you are thinking about developing a crisis communications plan and taking the first steps is number one, make a list of your risks, a comprehensive list of potential risks, and also consider what's the worst case scenario for each of those. What is the absolute worst case scenario for every risk that you can throw up on a giant sticky note right. and, you know, think about. Yeah. And then you have to evaluate how big are those risks? You know, what kind of impact could they have on the company? So how big is the risk? And then number three, who needs to know about it and when? Yeah. So there needs yeah. to be a grid of 
what stakeholders need to know and at what point, and maybe in some situations, everybody has to know immediately because it's already blown up on social media or in the media, but there there needs to be a strategy for who needs to know and when. Yeah, and I think a prioritization because you're yes. not going to be able to be all things to all people at the very same time in a crisis. You do have to prioritize your time and how you're going to manage that. Being prepared is so key, yet you have to be ready in the moment, too, as things change so quickly. And one of the areas of preparation is in managing your internal stakeholders. It is. I loved having Knoxville attorney Chad Hatmaker of Wolf McLean join us. He's a longtime friend of ours and just someone who's extremely well-respected in the market. He did a great job peeling back these layers of the employment implications, so the internal communications piece of what COVID-19 means for employers and just a lot of the internal relations and employee communications management and the issues that are arising as a result of this pandemic. And it's still a tough topic that employers are grappling with and, you know, will continue grappling with certainly this calendar year. Chad had a lot of great advice, much of which helped me in my own business make some decisions. So Chris, let's go to Chad's clip. Do you think these numbers, Chad, of teleworkers are going to go wildly up even after things level out and normalize a bit from this crisis? And, and, and what are going to be the, you know, the potential employment law considerations of that situation, if any? I, I do think the numbers will increase and the, the big potential employment law consideration is whether working at home or teleworking will be a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And, and just, uh. just, yeah, and so just briefly uh, for, for the listeners, the, the ADA, of course, prohibits discrimination against disabled employees, and it requires the employer to reasonably accommodate the employee's disability to allow him or her to perform the essential functions of the job if a reasonable accommodation can be provided without creating an undue hardship. So what you there's a lot of tension in the law on whether working at home or from home, working remotely is a reasonable accommodation. Certainly in some positions it's not, but in others it can be. What you're going to see, I believe, is in the past where an employer would have said, I can't have you work from home. It's an essential function that you have to be at work. And that argument might very well have carried the day. Well, if you've had that person working at home for two weeks, a month, or whatever time period it is during this pandemic. And then later you have someone who says, who's in a similar position that says they have to work at home for a reasonable accommodation. It's going to be really hard for the employer to argue, hey, that won't work because they've just done it and done it successfully. Right. Now, if during that time what happened was, yeah, they worked at home, but it was it was a disaster and you know, we couldn't get much, we had bad connections, yeah. that type of thing, then I think the yeah. employer will be able to say it was an undue hardship. We did it then. We didn't have a choice, but we can't do it again because it really didn't work. So this will create – that's a, it's a great question on employment law implications – this will create a whole new body of law under the ADA on whether teleworking is indeed a reasonable accommodation. And it will be proven to be in some cases and in some not. You know something, doses of reality are important in any crisis management process. And I love what Chad shared with us. You know, I also serve on the Blunt Memorial Foundation for our local community hospital. And 
We had two leaders from there to join us, Don Heineman and Assistant Administrator Connie Huffman, and Don is CEO. They made it really clear why the COVID impact on community hospitals at the local level is so significant. So I really want to share that with you too. Chris, if you could cue up that interview. I think in Tennessee, it's, it's, it's particularly distressing. I think we're number two in the nation on rural hospital closures. Uh, we've had, I think, 12 hospitals closed in the last five years. We had one announced uh, just two days ago in Dixon County. The board met and said because of the coronavirus outbreak and the impact on their operations that they were announcing they were closing their hospital on April 15th. So that'll be our. Oh my word! That'll be our. And I I think there's more of that to come, unless the state or federal government steps up pretty soon to stop this. I think there's going to be a lot more of those announcements coming. And as much as physical health in this coronavirus pandemic is important, the mental health issue has really emerged Mm -hmm. as a major one too. It was an honor to host Alicia Abersold. She is the chief communications officer of the American Psychological Association. She shared her perspective not only as a public relations strategist, but also as such an effective advocate for mental health awareness in general. I agree. You know, I was really glad that we were able to air this interview and ramp up to National Mental Health Awareness Month in May. So the timing really couldn't have been better. Chris, please take us to Alicia's comments. Well, one of the recurring themes we like to address on Misinterpreted is the notion of dispelling myths, stereotypes, misunderstandings in the public mindset, which keep people or organizations from reaching their highest potential. Along those lines, Alicia, what is misinterpreted most about the profession of psychology and what it has to offer people from all backgrounds and walks of life? Yeah, I love this question. I mean, I love the entire focus of your podcast. I think that's a great way to think about organizations and work. And I mean, my sense of what's misinterpreted about psychology is that there's three things. I think the first is that it's sort of all about the couch. It's that sort of Bob Newhart, you know, assessment that that's, that psychologists only do therapy and certainly psychologists do therapy. And there are a lot of psychologists doing therapy and we need them to be doing therapy, but that isn't the only thing that psychology is. The second thing I think that's misinterpreted is that psychology is not a science and that maybe it's impossible to do experiments on human behavior because people are so unpredictable, but in fact, it's not. And that research drives so much of the way our community and our world function. And then the third one is psychology is just common sense, which I think is a common misinterpretation of communications as well, that it's just something that people can figure out. I don't understand how it could help me, how it's relevant to my life. And one really good example of that is the issue of climate change. You know, we first started talking about climate change. People were saying, what does psychology have to do with climate change? That doesn't even make any sense. And The fact of the matter is psychology is front and center because climate change is a result of human behavior and psychology is the study of human behavior. So it makes a lot of sense that psychology would have a lot to say about how we can change the behaviors that are causing climate change and global warming. So that's what I would say. I'm really proud to announce that thanks to Alicia and the American Psychological Association, as well as our friends with the Public Relations and Communications Association or PRCA in London, Both organizations are going to be collaborating on a mental wellness webinar for the PR industry that's coming up. So 
Everybody, please keep tabs on that webinar. We'll be sharing information on social media about it. Such an important topic. And speaking of the PRCA, huge shout out to Corey Chomgaz, Head of Communications and Marketing for the PRCA. He joined us on episode nine of season two and shared with us these uplifting and inspirational words. Chris, please cue that one. What are you hearing among PRCA's membership about how they're responding from a mental wellness perspective to all that's occurring here? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really important point. Uh, I mean, as a society in general here, people are very much becoming more aware of the importance of mental health and particularly so over the past couple of weeks because those who have been living with conditions are, are more at risk now where we're talking about isolation, not coming into work, not seeing people face-to-face, not going outside. So all of these issues become even more prevalent, and and we've been doing an awful lot to promote uh, our our work around mental health. So, I mean, as you mentioned, we've run a number of research projects. The most recent one uh, suggested that 89% of PR professionals have struggled with their mental well-being at some point in the past 12 months, which is an extraordinary statistic when, when you consider it. But our research also drills down into the details of what it is about public relations and communication that triggers these issues. And, and you're absolutely right that it, the kind of tight deadlines, the 24-7 news cycle, the immediacy of, of social media and, and always feeling like you need to be on and willing to respond yeah. at all times, those can just be a recipe for a disaster. So we have what we call our mental health toolkit. And that is a resource which is open to anyone. It's a, it's free and open on our website. And it has a number of practical tools that people can use to promote mental well-being. So there's our research on there, but we also have guidance and best practice for line managers and what, what they can do to encourage their employees to take the necessary measures. So it's a, it's a massive issue for us and one which we're particularly mindful of at the moment. A terrific COVID-19 special edition we hosted was with two women who are now among my favorite, tell it like it is, women, Molly and Jules. Yeah, mine too. These women are no nonsense. (laughs) Really reminds me of two other women that I know, you and me. (laughs) If you care about integrity and public relations, you need to follow them on social media for sure. Julia Angeline Joy and Molly McPherson broke it down on what real crisis response effectiveness means. Chris, let's hear from them. Well, our brand and our profession and public relations, I feel, is just the same. I feel that any public relations practitioner or any business that values communications, as Jewel says, if they have a seat at the table, those are the organizations, those are the communicators that are going to be able to not only handle this crisis, but adjust from it and grow and become better and be prepared for the next crisis. The people that you hear speaking, the quotes that you hear, the poll quotes, what you see on Twitter, or see polls in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, those are the ones that tend to survive it because they're willing to take the sacrifice to step out there because they're not hiding anything. It's the ones who aren't speaking. Those are the ones that you have to be nervous about. So any public relations professional, practitioner, advisor, if you're hearing from them or they're behind a leader that you hear from, then they're on the right path. 
And you said earlier the phrase, and and you and Molly have both been really good at this, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, and we're all sort of in this together. And I love that about the community that we've built Mm -hmm. via social media, and I have that community. Um, I think it's easy. We're in public relations. We're in communications. It's easier for us to connect and build those communities. Probably not every industry has it um, as easy as we do. But also, you very nicely pointed out how I like to, um, I think you said, keep tabs on our industry. (laughs) (laughs) I use that term loosely. (laughs) (laughs) That's very nice of you. Because I have gotten, I've received a couple of complaints about my very stark sort of negative portrayal of the public relations industry. And I do it with an absolute love of my profession. I've done this for 25 years. It's been my life. It's the only work that I can do. So I in no way want to degrade or denigrate what we do, but I also have an understanding of learning styles and building communities and building cultures. And people don't learn necessarily by the warm, fuzzy stuff. Yeah. So if I could put, post a beautiful quote about PR being warm and fuzzy and lovey, <laughs> and that would stop all the bad PR. Puppies, lots of puppies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's a puppy doing PR. Don't send bad pitches. If that works, <laughs> then that's what I would do. But people learn by absorbing often. This is why we have horror movies scary, difficult, traumatic scenarios, and then placing themselves in those scenarios and subconsciously or consciously saying, gee, how would I survive that? Or how would I um, escape that? Or how would I get through that? So on on a much lower level, I'm trying to do some social group learning about really what should be best practices. And the thing that, and you and I, Mary Beth, talk about this frequently, I feel like our profession could do so much to elevate our trust levels, our ethical codes, and we could really rise to the occasion of where I believe communication should be, which is to have a seat at the table. That is a great clip. And it brings us to our last theme of season two, patriotism. Two of our interviewees have served in uniform. Bob Dickey of Bonvera is a U.S. Air Force veteran and Lieutenant Colonel Ashley Niklos. And of course, our guest, Joy Bishop, also served in the U.S. Air Force Civil Service. Chris, let's hear from Bob Dickey. You know how many BMWs I have sold in my lifetime because I'm a raving fanatic about that car brand? And you know how much I've ever been paid for, for, from BMW for that? Zero dollars. But I am, I'm a raving advocate because I've been, in, I've been in two car accidents where I believe the vehicle saved my life. And the very first BMW, just to kind of go, go off a rabbit trail here, the very first BMW I bought was when I was a captain in the Air Force in Honolulu, Hawaii. And I was transitioning out of that job and my replacement was coming in. And uh, my job was to teach him and tell him all about the local layer and get them all set up before I PCS'd. And so it was on a Friday afternoon. He said, hey, Bob, I need to get a vehicle for me and my wife. You know, what would you recommend? And I was joking. I was joking with him at the time. I said, whatever you do. I said, you can go down. Here's where you can go. He wanted a luggage rack for uh, surfboards right. for the beach. And I say, you know, the Jeep dealership's over here and there's a Chevy dealership over here. And, you know, but whatever you do, don't go down to the BMW dealership and drive one of their vehicles. I just left it at that. And he looks at me and goes, well, why? What do you mean? I said, because if you drive one of those cars, you will buy one. I (laughs) I promise you. All right. Come, that was on a Friday afternoon. 
come Monday morning, sitting in my parking spot out in front of the, my, the headquarters at Hickam Air Force Base was a brand new X5 that that guy had bought. <laughs> and he was raving about it. So look, I, in my entire career, I, I have become a raving fan and advocate for incredible products that I love. You know, one of my favorite episodes was with Ashley Niccolo. She is a true friend to both you and me, Kelly. I'm just really grateful for the truly moving story of patriotism across generations in her own family that she shared. It was so powerful. Yeah, she's amazing. She's not only a kick-ass leader in every way, she's really a girl's girl, a woman who stands up for other women and is exactly the kind of advocate we need in these bastions of male-dominated sectors where it's unbelievably tough for women even to be accepted, not to mention succeed. Yeah. And while, you know, I think all of us may have diverse political viewpoints and just different walks of life that inform those viewpoints, there's one thing that's for certain. Ashley is for America first and foremost. Chris, please cue Ashley on that. Would you share a little bit about why you decided to become a pilot and your journey? And I love the story about mm -hmm. your grandfather. Yeah. Oh, yes. So that is my mother's father. His name was Ted Holmes, Theodore Breckenridge Holmes. He was a B-17 pilot out of North Africa, staging out of Libya at the time early in the war. And I've read letters from him where he was on mission number 28. And he was training a brand new co-pilot who he had to teach how to take off, do a bombing mission and land all while being shot at over Italy while his buddies were being shot out of the sky beside him. And you know, he said, I apologize for my trembling hand. Sometimes the pressure gets a bit overwhelming. But he was so passionate about, please tell everyone at home that we are doing what we need to do. This is a mission that the world needs to take on because there is evil in this world that we are fighting against. And it's very interesting hearing his words from those letters. He came home. I believe he had survivor's guilt, honestly, from reading his letters, and he decided to sign up and fly B-29s in the Pacific. And he was sent to Saipan as a B-29 aircraft commander. He arrived there in November, if my timeline is correct, of 1944, and he flew his last mission in 1945, March of 1945. And he actually was sent on a mission with his crew to do weather reconnaissance and also a bombing raid. And halfway through the mission, they realized they weren't gonna have enough fuel to get back if they continued with their mission. However, the weather reporting was extremely vital for the follow-on mission, which was Operation Meeting House, which was the first major firebombing of Tokyo that was gonna be going that evening after they landed. So they elected to continue and on their way home, they ran out of fuel and he had to ditch it into the Pacific. He died. However, uh, four other people survived from his crew. And so that's how I was able to find online, actually, the final mission in their thought process. And, you know, he so believed in what he did that he sacrificed everything for it. And my mother was actually born two months after his death. So in that moment where I read that story, it was actually on a temporary duty assignment. And uh, it really brought me full circle because 
What I do as an air refueling tanker pilot is I make sure those men and women get home to their children, to their families, that they are able to save the troops on the ground and make sure those troops get home. And so I'm not the fighter pilot. And, you know, I'm just more in the backside of things, but we always have a constant mission over the troops on the ground and the fighters in the air to make sure that they get home safely. And to me, that's worth more than any type of recognition or glory in, in being another type of like fighter pilot or anything. Everybody has their mission that is so vital and important in our military, and none of it can be de-emphasized because all these moving parts make things happen. And final clip of the season, Kelly, fasten your seatbelts, listeners. We're starting a blooper reel. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was your idea because I'm the one with all the bloopers. So let me exactly. just say. <laughs> Nothing to be misinterpreted there. No. I'm the one who always messes up. So we have an excellent editor and Chris Hill of Humble Pod. And he has been laughing on every episode as he edits for us with our goof ups and foul ups and <laughs> he's he humors us for sure. Yeah, well when he sent us this outtake we just knew we had to share it. And our thanks to Ashley Nicklos, because she was our guest on that episode and she kind of endured our slips of the tongue here, all in good humor. Kelly, I'm going to enroll you in speech therapy so that you can start saying Twitter chat without a hitch. I don't think it'll ever happen, <laughs> but I'll take all the help I can get. Please, Chris, go ahead. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. And don't miss our new Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. Now we've gotten to it. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. Okay. Did you do like Early taking it. Twitter chats. Did the other day. Yes. Twitter chats. That is so awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm crying again, but it's for a whole other reason. Okay, this has to be an outtake. I'm <laughs> yeah, we do have a script. Oh, oh God. Stick with the script. We haven't stuck with the script the whole time. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Okay. Do, do you want me to do the clothes? <laughs> no, I've got to do okay. it. I've okay. got to get it right. All right. I can do it. Okay. <laughs> Stop it. Get the twatter on. Let's get our twatter <laughs> Okay. Hashtag twatter. Okay. On that note, it's been an incredible season two, and that's a wrap. Our thanks to you listeners. And Kelly, thanks for your leadership of Fletcher PR for being the best partner in crime I could ever ask for. And listeners, stay tuned with us this summer as we embark on season three of Misinterpreted. And please follow us as well at Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. You can also follow Kelly at KD Fletcher and me at Mary Beth West. We'll respond to your questions and comments. So please post them using the hashtag Ms. Interpreted. And that's hashtag MS Interpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. And let me do this one for you, Kelly. Listeners, please join our Twitter chat. <laughs> The last Wednesday of each month at hashtag misinterpreted as well. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted Public Relations Demystified. 
You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 